Almighty God and Heavenly Father, this is the day that you have made, and in it we are to rejoice and to be glad. For on this day you raised Jesus Christ to life, confirming all that he achieved for us in his death, in his suffering, in his passion upon the cross. And this is the day of Pentecost, when you gave us your Holy Spirit to breathe into us your own life. We ask that the Holy Spirit comes to us tonight, our Comforter, our Counselor, our Teacher, our Companion. That we may know that Jesus in all his love and in his power stands in our midst that we may look to him and find in him our blessing and our peace. Oh Father God, what a thing it is that you should call us your children and adopt us into your family. We worship you. We worship you for all that you have given to us today and in these days, for the blessings we know at home among family and friends, in the fellowship of this congregation in the wider church. And above all and again, we thank you for Jesus, incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended. As we bow before you, we make confession as we must of our sin and our wrongdoing. We know we have erred and strayed like sheep and gone our own way. And we have offended and dishonored you. But the wonder is, there is good news that in Christ we are forgiven. In Christ we are robed in his righteousness. And you accept us to yourself. May each of us know that assurance this night. As we ask that you speak to us. Speak to each one of us. Let each one of us hear what you want us to hear. And so we may go on our way, richly blessed and equipped and resourced and empowered for your service. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage tonight, continuing in our studies in the first letter of John, is chapter 2 at verse 28 through to chapter 3 verse 10. Let us hear the word of God. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, 
Do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who are the children of God, who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. I want to begin with a bit of a confession, and I'm slightly reluctant to do this, but my confession is that this is quite a complex passage. It's quite a solid or dense passage. And I'm a bit aware that when I say that, if you're sitting there, you might, you might be thinking to yourself, well, if he's finding it complex, I'm going to find it very complex and perhaps uh, turn off. But I say that because I really do want to try and make this passage as clear as I can and as simple as I can for my sake, even before your sakes. And I want to suggest that the passage has two big ideas in it. And if we're looking at a passage which is complex and is a bit dense, full of teaching, full of truths, if we're looking at a passage of scripture which is causing us to struggle a bit to try and find out what it means, it's a very good idea, it's a very good tip to see if it's got some big ideas in it, some dominant ideas that really govern the text itself. I thought, if I may say so, Dan was very helpful this morning in quite a long passage from 1 Samuel in actually identifying some of the big themes, the big ideas. And I want to suggest here tonight we have two of these. The first is adoption. The idea of adoption, being adopted into the family of God, becoming children of God, sons and daughters in God's family. That's the first of the big ideas. And the second one is righteousness. Righteousness, which is quite a wide spectrum word, but I think the sense in which John is using it here is pointing to behaving rightly, behaving righteously, behaving well. And that seems to be the theme, the big idea of the second part of the passage. So I will endeavour to make those two ideas as clear as I can. And I start with adoption. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I really think that's one of the great verses of Scripture. It really is. So, adoption. I wonder what experience adoption of adoption we have here tonight. I don't know what your experience of adoption is. Maybe one or two of you are adopted, or you have adopted members of your family, or you have friends who are adopted. You may know a lot more of a, about adoption than, than I do, but um, my experience of adoption, and I speak for my wife Hazel here, is that one of our godchildren is adopted. 
with a number of God-children. Um, that's a bit unusual in some ways in the Church of Scotland Presbyterian, which is our church. The Anglicans who do these things uh, rather better. The uh, godparents have a significant part in the baptismal service. But it's quite a common practice with us, and we found it very helpful to have uh, godparents for our children. Very helpful indeed, actually. Creates some very particular and close relationships. And we've been thrilled to be uh, godparents to a number of, of, of children, one of whom, Rosemary, was adopted. And I have to say, right in a way that was a very, very successful adoption. Absolutely lovely girl. Um, gosh, how old is she now? 40 or something around there. She's married, she has her own family. He and, uh, she and her husband are very uh, devout members of, of their church. And we've had a lovely relationship with her, really, across all the years. And I had the uh, privilege of, of sharing in, in the conduct of her wedding service. But I very well remember uh, when Rosemary arrived. We had close friends who were married a little bit before us, and we knew that they were looking forward very much to starting their own family, but they were uh, unable to do so. The, the wife didn't conceive, and after treatment, which was not successful, they approached an adoption agency. And they also approached us and asked if we might be referees for them, which we were delighted to do. And then a little bit of time passed, and I think it was on a Tuesday, we were suddenly rung up by our friends in some state of a panic because the baby uh, that they were going to adopt was available and should be collected on the Friday. Now, normally one gets the best part of nine months warning for these things, but <laughs> they had about three days. And our little boy was one, and he'd grown out of his baby things, so we packed up uh, a lot of baby things into the car, and off we went to the other side of London, and uh, we uh, delivered the stuff uh, for little Rosemary. And interestingly, um, her parents um, went on to have two children of their own later, which is, is not uncommon. But a hugely successful adoption, and it's been a, a pleasure and a privilege for us to be involved in that family, to see how well it worked. And this idea of adoption, of coming into a family, is what John is pointing to here. Let's look at the verse again. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. And I sense here some real uh, astonishment or, or amazement, a real, a real sense of wonder on John's part as he contemplates the grace of God, the goodness of God in bringing us into his family. A lot of scripture, I think, is quite, uh, it's quite dignified, it's quite um, unemotional in some ways, but here is a verse that really leaps out at you uh, with, with its emotion, with, with the astonishment, uh, the, the, the lavishness of God's love, the extravagance of God's love, the, the, the generosity of God's love, to work in this way that we can be gathered in, we can be called, and, and become children of God, into the family of God adopted into his family. It's a very powerful verse and a very powerful understanding. It relates closely, of course, to the idea of new birth, becoming uh, children of God. Again, the idea of new birth is strong, is strong in John. It's a big idea in John. If you remember early on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, the encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Or go back a little further to the very prologue of John's gospel. 
John writes this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And John sees in this, as I say, a lavishness, an, an extravagance in the goodness of God and the goodness of the grace of God, that we should, through the work of Christ, be gathered in to God's family and adopted as his sons and his, his daughters. Let me say four things about this adoption, this becoming part of God's family. First of all, it is a work of grace. It is not earned, it's not deserved. There are no uh, good works or good merits that we can pile up to oblige God. We don't enter into a negotiation with him for our salvation. It is all truly of grace. It's a gift. And Paul makes that wonderfully clear in the second chapter of Ephesians. Where he says this, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. God's grace, God's lavish love, God's extravagant goodness and generosity brings us into his family because he loves us and because he's chosen us. I remember on one occasion saying to Rosemary's father, when Rosemary was a little girl and the other two children had come along and I was wondering how do you play it between one child who's adopted and the, child and the other children who are, who are natural children and I, I was given this answer I said, I said you, you, you've told Rosemary she's adopted and they said oh yes she's known that right from the beginning but we told her we chose her we told her we chose her and I thought that was a wonderful response and I've heard that from other parents who've adopted children this sense of choosing the child and that's what we see in the grace of God. The second point I want to make is, as we are adopted as God's children, we enter into his family. We enter into his family. We have a home. We have brothers and sisters. We have a heavenly father. I was interested in the uh, powerful, certainly, and remarkable sermon yesterday at the royal wedding by Bishop Michael Curry that he pointed this out in terms of the power of God's love it brings us into God's family it brings us together into God's family it's a different family from a natural family but it's a real family we are brothers and sisters together in Jesus Christ in the family of God it's a very powerful idea, a very powerful model. Some of you may know I'm chaplain at the Oxford Centre for Mission Studies in the Woodstock Road. Very inter interesting uh, institution associated with Middlesex University and it um, arranges for world church scholars and practitioners to do a PhD in Christian Mission Studies. We have something over 100, 110 students from over 40 different countries 
worldwide, Asia, Africa, South America, North America, Europe, Middle East. We've got students from the whole of the world church. But very interestingly, they come from different denominations. One or two Roman Catholic. We've had one or two who are, who are Orthodox Christians. We've quite a lot of Pentecostal Christians. Quite a lot of Protestant Christians. Evangelicals, Anglicans, and whatever. But we really are not aware of our denominational background. We call ourselves cross denominational. And someone said to me the other day, Andrew, I don't know whether someone's a Presbyterian or a Baptist or an Anglican or a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox. What I do know is that we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. We are in the family of Christ. We have brothers and sisters together, worldwide, in the family of Christ. And I think that's hugely comforting, but I think it's also a huge challenge. It's a challenge to our individualism, which is so prominent, certainly in the West. We can often define our faith in terms of an individual response. There's a very strong atomistic individualism in parts of the church and certainly in our, our world and our culture. And this is a challenge to it, because we bring forward the community that is the family of God's people. And the second challenge, it seems to me, and it's an important one, is to nationalism. I don't know what political views you take about the world that we're living in today, but it seems to me that various nationalisms are very prominent. North America, our own country here with all the issues that surround Brexit. Nationalism is a very strong force. But the family of God seems to me to set up an alternative that is so much more hopeful, so much more healing, so much more creative. So much more lovely. The family of God's children, brothers and sisters together, so close, deriving their love for one another from the love that God has lavished on them in such extravagance. The third thing I think we see in this adoption is our access to a loving Father. We have access in the family of God as his children to God himself. Paul puts it like this in Romans. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Abba, Father, that intimate, personal word for Father. We might translate it Daddy or Papa. I think it would be a little odd, even grotesque, if we use that of God ourselves. But Jesus used it of his Father and here Paul calls on us to see that close and lovely and intimate and personal and loving relationship that we have with God our Father. I remember a lovely little incident when my wife and I were in um, Israel some years ago. We were staying overnight in Nazareth, staying in a guest house, and the coach was gathering up the uh, party of us to go on somewhere else, and we were waiting just 
front of the guest house and there was a little girl there of about, I don't know, four or five or something and she was looking for her father and she was crying, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, where are you, Abba? And that really touched me and it reflected something of this extraordinary access that we have through Jesus Christ to God our Heavenly Father. There's grace, the undeserved grace of God, there is the family that we enter, we have access to a loving Father, and fourthly, we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. We have the full rights that come to a child who is adopted. Uh, Paul says in uh, Romans at the end of the passage I quoted earlier, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And put in some ways even more powerfully this idea of inheritance in the first letter of Peter. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, into an inheritance, and listen to this, that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. The glorious hope that we are heirs because we are children of God and we have all the rights of his children in the good things that he has prepared for us. So back to that great verse, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but what but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Our hope till Christ comes again to take us to himself. Well, I think that's the big idea, as I understand it, that opens our passage. And we move now to the second of the big ideas, righteousness. Righteousness. Behaving rightly, living rightly. And I want to start by saying that if the first point is true, that we are adopted into God's family, and he has lavished his love on us, and we are his children, then that makes a difference. The logic is, it makes a difference. We don't just carry on as we were before. It makes a difference. Our faith should make a difference. I was absolutely astonished a couple of weeks ago with a remark made on a television, a program on Judaism, I think there were two or three in the series, by Simon Sharma. One or two of you may possibly have seen it. Very interesting program. And at one point he interviews a Jewish rabbi. And the rabbi said this. as an old man with a nice long beard. He said, the trouble for the Jews in the Old Testament is that they expected the Messiah and he hasn't come. And then he went on to say this, and this astonished me. The trouble with the Christians in the New Testament is that Jesus has come and he's made no difference. That really shocked me. 
can't believe that 2,000 years of the church has made no difference. And I think we could debate that at great length. But that was what was said. And it does in a way reflect a challenge that our faith should make a difference. Surely it should make a difference. When I first started my ministry in Edinburgh, I was very well helped by a lovely elderly retired man who was with me for a couple of years. And I remember him saying to me, Andrew, he said, if you've got a group of your friends, and some of them are Christians and some are not, he said, you'll find the Christians are the ones that really stand out. Is that true? should be true. It should be true. You can't really say that our faith makes no difference. But it's a challenge. And we should see a change. We should see a transformation in ourselves as we come to faith in Christ. And as we see the lavish love that God has poured out upon us in Jesus. I was at university with a man who made a wonderful confession of coming to Christ that his great sin, as according to him, was his language. He swore and he blasphemed. His language was so critical and so condemning of others, so unkind, so callous. He'd rarely find anything good to say about anyone, and he gossiped a lot. But he came to Christ and it transformed him, and it changed him. And I remember he gave that testimony, it was a very powerful testimony. There are other things that we need change from. It may be some kind of addiction, whether to a substance of some kind, or pornography, or whatever it might be, or we're involved in abuse in others, or there's intolerance and impatience and corruption in us. There may be greed and selfishness. We reject the laws of God. There can be all manner of different sins that make up our own godlessness before we encounter Christ. But surely when we do encounter Christ... It makes a difference. And the difference should be evident in our righteousness, our righteous behaviour. Look at verses 4 to 6. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Note the definition of sin as lawlessness. Verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. Helpful. It's a good definition. It's not just that we break the law, but there is no law. It's lawless. Our lives are lawless. There are other good definitions of sin. I like the definition of sin that's um, a picture of, a, of an archer sh- shooting an arrow at a, at a target and it falls short. It just falls short. I like that definition of sin. I know I fall short repeatedly. Another nice definition of sin is bias, that you can't keep to the straight and narrow. Whatever it is, something pulls you off one way or another, to the right or to the left. We have that picture in Law and Bowls, where the bowl is biased. You can't bowl it straight, but that's a definition of our sin. Another definition of sin which I like is temptation. You have the picture of the little sign that says, Do not touch wet paint. And what do you want to do? 
you want to touch it. Or the sign on the door, private, keep out. And you think, well, what can possibly be private going on in there? So, if you had the opportunity, you would open the door. Or perhaps on the top of a piece of paper, strictly private and confidential, and you wonder what can be strictly and private about that. What can be confidential? Temptation works in all of us. All of us tempted. So here is sin, and sin defined here as lawlessness. And then a definition of perfection in Christ himself. He is without sin. He is perfect. So on the one hand we have lawlessness, and on the other hand we have Christ who is perfect. And I want to say two things about this tension. The first is that our righteousness comes from Christ himself. It is given to us as a gift from Christ. Paul, in his writings, repeatedly refers to the righteousness that comes from God in Christ being credited to us, or imputed to us, or we're treated as if this was ours because it's been given to us as a gift. It contrasts with law. There's no way through law and through good works to salvation But there is in the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It comes as a gift. It's not a condition of salvation. The condition of salvation is the cross on which our Lord was crucified. But this is given to us as a gift of grace. The righteousness is the righteousness of Christ which comes to us as a gift of grace. There's a phrase in Isaiah about our righteousness being filthy rags. Not an easy thing to persuade ourselves of or to suggest applies to others. Our righteousness, the righteous acts, our righteous deeds, the good things about us, God sees as our filthy rags. And he's prepared to robe us in the the white robes of Jesus. Washed in the blood of Jesus, we become white robed in white, in the white righteousness of Jesus. And I think we have to say that, because that's where our righteousness comes from. And then secondly, if you look at the passage, there is a problem. Because it seems that John is arguing for perfection, and indeed sinlessness. You pick it up in verse 6, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You pick it up again in verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. How do you react to that, this call to perfection and sinlessness? Is that right? Do you think we're called to absolutely perfect and sinless lives? Is that possible? It certainly seems that it's what John has put down here. But I think to set the thing in a proper context, we need to go back to what John said in the opening chapter, in a very important passage. Chapter 1, verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place 
in our lives. My friends, I think we do continue to sin. Our sinlessness and our perfection is in the life to come. And it's realistic to make that confession now. But, and I looked hard at what the commentators said about this apparent contradiction, but we should sin the less. We should start to confess our sin, which we perhaps did not do before. We should perhaps confront our sins, which perhaps we did not do before. We should not persist in our sins. We should not be indifferent to our sins. We should die to sin. In many ways, I think John here is referring to a heresy in the early church that some thought that because of the grace of God they could do anything they liked. They could sin as much as they liked. God would cover it with his grace. God forgives because that's what he does. And Paul says, shall we sin the more that grace may abound? He picks up this heresy, this this wrong teaching, and it may well be that this is what John is countering here. When we come to Christ, when we believe we're in his family, when we experience the love, the extravagant love he has lavished on us in Christ crucified and risen, when that is our experience and that is our faith and that is our belief, It makes a difference. It makes a difference. We confront our sins. We confess our sins. We die to sin. We don't persist in our sins. We do all that we can to live in a way that pleases God. That, I think, is the second big idea. And so we have these two ideas in this passage. Adoption adopted into the family of God and I'd like to think that those who encounter us here at Maudlin Road Church have something of that sense for all our imperfections and our faults and our sinfulness that there is something of the character of God's own family here the family into which we are adopted where we find in one another brothers and sisters and I hope also that this faith makes a difference makes all the difference We wear or we have the righteousness of Christ. It's changing our behaviour. It's transforming us. We are deciding to go with that. We are deciding to open ourselves to the Spirit of God in all his humility and gentleness and repentance. Helping us confront our sin. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it would be good if those who encountered us here at Magdalen Road Church also saw something of the fruit of the Spirit in us. So adoption and righteousness. Let's meditate on these things and lay them in our hearts. Let us pray. God and Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you make it clear and sure for us. That we may experience that lavish love that comes through Jesus Christ to us as a gift of grace. That extravagant love makes us astonished and amazed that we are brought into your family as your children. 
and that we learn to live lives that are more righteous and more pleasing to you, accepting the grace that comes in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit to see that working in our lives to produce fruit pleasing to you. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.